until you drive north along the banks of the Mississippi River from New Orleans, it's hard to really understand the plantation system of agriculture there prior to the Civil War. Until you meander along the many twists and turns of that great muddy river, it's hard to imagine how hundreds of thousands of black Americans might have been controlled by a few hundred white Americans. It seems inconceivable that slavery should have dominated southern agriculture for so long. It seems inconceivable that revolt after revolt would have been put down. It seems inconceivable until you realize the structure of plantation life ensured white dominance. The very shape of the plantation, along with its proximity to other plantations, guaranteed white control. Unlike the square farms of the Midwest or the Western United States, the plantations along the Mississippi River were long and skinny. Each had about a half a mile frontage on the Mississippi River and its own dock. From this frontage, they stretched in pie-shaped pieces miles and miles away from the river. On a map, the plantations look like the pleats of a lady's fan, each connected to the other and radiating out from the center. Back from the dock, a few hundred feet stood the plantation's big house, its radiant jewel and status symbol. Often built up on high foundations to mitigate flooding, the plantation houses were the opulent living quarters of the white owners. A boat ride up or down the Mississippi River would have revealed a sparkling necklace of graceful homes with their elegant oak tree driveways down to the dock. Even today, most tourists along the Mississippi River are there to see the remaining plantation houses that are open to the public. Every mile or so, there is one of these grand old houses peeking out of its shady grove to please the gone-with-the-wind crowd. But not only were the plantation houses set near the river to show off their wealth, but they were there to be close to one another, close enough to flee to in case of danger. Even though the white plantation owners controlled their enslaved blacks, they were perpetually afraid of them. Slave riots were the chief concern of the day. Brutal measures were put in place to quell these riots, but sometimes fleeing was the only choice. Just behind the big house on these Mississippi River plantations stood the overseer's house and the, and the house slave quarters. These buildings and the people who inhabited them provided a kind of buffer for the white family. The overseer could be either white or black, and he did whatever the owner wanted to keep order. Likewise, the blacks who were permitted to work in the plantation house were considered more trustworthy and were co-opted into the system through their less harsh life. Beyond the overseer's house stood the regular slave cabins, and beyond them the barns and the fields. Usually facing one another along dirt streets, the slave cabins often housed many more people than we would imagine. 
a three-bedroom cabin might be home to 15 people, and these 15 people might not even be related to one another. Other than the cabin mother who stayed home each day to cook and clean and care for small children, the other inhabitants of the cabin would work six days a week doing whatever the plantation needed done in season. They often worked from sunup to sundown. Only Sunday was a day of rest. For most enslaved people, the plantation was a closed system. They were forbidden from traveling to adjacent plantations or from speaking to other plantations people. Most could not read or write. Many had been born on the plantation where they worked, and most expected to die there as well. News of the outside world came through whispers and rumors. Organizing of any kind was strictly forbidden. The overseer would even attend worship services to make sure the black preacher was not stirring his people up. Punishment for running away, organizing against the owner, stealing or insubordination was swift and brutal. Those in control used the whip, the jail, and the gun liberally. Any romantic notion of plantation life in the 18th and 19th centuries are just that, ill-informed romantic notions. Now, I have been to hard places before, as I expect many of you have as well. I'm someone who goes to places where awful things have happened. From a trip as a child to see the Custer battlefield, to visits to Dachau, Germany, and Soweto Township in Johannesburg, South Africa, I can go to places where great human evil has taken place and learn from them. Whether I'm visiting the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., or standing at the entrance of Francis David's tomb, or his cell, in fact, in Deva, Romania, I can open my mind and heart to the suffering that has taken place there. I can feel a deep connection to the wider suffering of the world. It's not that I like places like these. It's that I find it helpful to my spiritual practice to witness to the suffering of others, witness to it so that I might help prevent it in the future. So I expected to be a solemn witness to suffering the day two friends and I drove up the Mississippi River from New Orleans to visit Whitney Plantation. Unlike the other plantations that are open to the public, Whitney Plantation is the only one that focuses on the experience of enslaved blacks who were forced to work on the plantations. Because life went on after the Civil War and freed blacks continued to live in the same cabins and work the same fields as before, few of the original cabins survive to today. So what one sees at Whitney Plantation is a recreation of what it looked like using cabins and other buildings salvaged from nearby plantations. Even its chapel was brought in from elsewhere. But rather than taking away from the experience, this collection of buildings mirrors the black community formed on the plantation when it was operational. People with roots all over sub-Saharan Africa and the Caribbean would have created community with one another on the grounds of Whitney Plantation. 
They would have gathered weekly in the same chapel. They would have helped one another as best they could. They would have cared for one another as community and family. It was raining lightly when we arrived at Whitney Plantation. We met our tour guide with umbrellas in hand, ready to see how things had really worked on this Louisiana farm. I was ready to see just how bad it had been. I was ready to be appalled further by slavery. I was ready to see raw humanity. And yes, raw humanity was on display at Whitney Plantation, but something much more powerful outshone it. Something much more powerful and subversive was on display, and its audacious hope startled and surprised me. All of Whitney Plantation's tour guides are black. Each has a personal story about how they are linked to the system of slavery that propelled the United States to economic greatness. Because there is obvious pride in being descended from the survivors of slavery, the guides at Whitney Plantation are not about to let anyone wallow in his or her white guilt for a moment. As we went from building to building in the steady rain, our guide answered any and all questions in a matter-of-fact way. She did not flinch away from the hardships endured by her ancestors in this place, and she did not make excuses for people, black or white. I was greatly heartened by the story of survival, she related. She talked about how black people on the plantation helped one another, how they taught each other survival skills, how they raised each other's children, how they kept each other from suicide, how they made music together, and how throughout it all, they laughed and they laughed and they laughed because, in fact, laughter was the best medicine after all. Even though the stories of Slave revolts that were put down and runaways who were captured. Our guide never let us forget that we were learning about a community that persevered. We were not to feel sorry for the people of Whitney Plantation. We were to be proud of them. We were to admire them for their ingenuity and tenacity. We were to applaud their ability to survive, and we were to thank them for their contributions to American society. The people who lived and worked at Whitney Plantation might not have had much freedom, but they were just as American as we are today, and they did just as much in their day to work for freedom and justice as we might do in our own day. Whitney Plantation was not about slavery at all. It was about the resistance of the enslaved. Now, sometimes I think we Americans get overly balled up in our attempts to figure out race relations in our own country. We get overly balled up in having the right response, using the right words, doing the right thing. And because we get overly balled up, we do much less than any of us would like. We settle for an anemic response. We talk a little about race relations in safe settings where we think we won't upset anyone. And I wonder sometimes 
Just what are we afraid of? Why are we so timid? Why do we walk on eggshells around people of color? What I know is when I can get out of my own way and just wade into a conversation without any expectation that I will know the right or the best thing to say, I usually don't make too much of a fool of myself. When I can talk about race and racism from a place of honest curiosity, I get sincere answers. People of color are not fragile or angry or disdainful. They are ordinary folks like the rest of us who want to live in community, often with us. They want the same things that we want, fairness in housing and employment, safe streets and neighborhoods, a chance to retire one day, a house that can be a home, an equal say at the ballot box, and a good education for their children. Who could argue with those things? It should not be so hard to find common ground. It should not be so hard to bring our voices together. The most striking symbolism in our tour of Whitney Plantation was, in fact, its big house. A pleasing Creole-style mansion, somewhat smaller than its grand neighbors, the White family's house at Whitney Plantation is, in fact, not the best thing on the tour Long ago stripped of its fine furnishings and its elegance, the the house stands in good shape, but it is not preserved as a shining example of the wealth and privilege it once embodied. Its walls have been painted white, and a few pieces of replacement furniture have been added to give some indication of what the rooms might have looked like. But there has been no attempt to restore it to its previous glory. Of course, the tour goes through it. How could it not? We were all as curious as anyone. But the remarkable thing was how our guide's narration of the big house allowed us to experience even it differently. She explained the big house through the eyes of one of the servants, someone who would have had to navigate between the wealth and freedom of the plantation's owners and the brutal work experience of the field hands. As we stood at a second-floor window and looked back at the small town formed by cabins, stables, shops, and tool sheds, we could see where the real community of Whitney Plantation had lived. We could see the big house was just a pretty veneer overlaying a system of survival that kept black people alive through slavery. The white supremacy of their day ruled these people's lives, but it did not define their history. We would be wise in our day to see how systems of oppression control people, but do not define them. We would be wise in our day to side with the oppressed, knowing that our own liberation is bound up with theirs. So be it. Amen.